Tonight on the Retrospectical Podcast, episode 16, we're discussing the top 10 new scientific discoveries in about the last five years. That's a really long title, huh? It's precise. <laughs> so I dig it. So welcome to the show, and uh, as always, uh, it's myself and Jason here in the studio, and we're drinking some kind of beer. So what, what have we got uh, cracked open here? Well, Dave, this evening uh, we've got one of our favorite breweries in the house, Pipeworks, uh, the Citra versus Mandarina. I assume that it means, yes, uh, it's a double India Pale Ale brewed with Citra and Mandarina hops. Um, I've been getting, really getting into the uh, citrusy IPAs lately, so this is right up my alley. Um, after one sip, I can tell you that I do enjoy it. Cool. Well, let me try and it the, out. The myself. smell is awesome, and it's um, you know, usually these uh, these citrusy ones are kind of light. Like uh, I had one from New uh, Belgium that was probably I don't know, like maybe five percent, uh, but this one's eight point five percent. So it has that citrusy flavor and a nice alcoholic kick to it because it's a double IPA. Yeah, and later on we'll have another interestingly flavored double IPA with the high gravity. So, there you go. <laughs> it's a good theme to have for an evening. Sure. As long as you don't have to work in like three hours or anything, we're good. <laughs> Drive anywhere, operate heavy machinery, the usual. Anyway, uh, we haven't done a whole lot of uh, retrospectical podcasts this particular year. That's 2016. Um, and we've been doing a lot of topics that have been uh, sort of you know, stuff that you can listen to over the course of, of time rather than something that's just uh, good for a couple of weeks or good for a couple of months and then just kind of gets blown out of the water. That'll be next time. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, so tonight, uh, what we wanted to go over is just a couple of the really cool things that science has brought us um, in discovery at the very least. A lot of these things don't, you know, go into fruition for actual products or applications for a couple of years after the basic uh, basic things are discovered. And in fact, what you'll find is that a lot of discoveries we won't even talk about are going to end up being some of the most important of the decade, for example. Sure. It's and because things haven't been put together yet. Right, and some of these could be put to uses that nobody's even thought of yet. That's what's so fun about like the abstract sort of discovery, like NASA and stuff like that, is that you know the stuff that they discover, you have no idea what it's going to be used for 20 years from now. Yeah, um, so I wanted to start and do about the last five years or so. So just in 2011, uh, we can go over uh, some of the discoveries that are really important, in my opinion, from 2011 all the way up to 2015. And heck, maybe later this year or the next year we could do a follow-up show just on stuff in the past year. Because God knows there's a whole lot of uh, scientific discoveries that have been happening and are happening all around us. But we do, I think become kind of uh, desensitized to that stuff, um, especially when you're on a community like Reddit or you know you have a homepage like Yahoo or Google News or something where you're just constantly lambasted, bombarded with information every single day. Uh, a lot of that just bounces off of you, I think. You get so many headlines and not much uh, content, not much depth there. Right. So uh, before we jump into those uh, things from 2011 and onward, I thought it'd be interesting maybe if we talked about some of the discoveries 
that actually occurred the previous uh, decade. So again, we're talking about about five-year period, uh, but what about the things that happened in the 2000s? So to have some perspective on the things we're talking about now, maybe we should talk a little bit about that. Um, so for example, uh, in 2005, uh, this guy Mike Brown had a team of scientists at the Palomar Observatory in California, and they discovered Eris, which is this uh, minor body, which is 27% bigger than Pluto. So it is a dwarf planet. Um, as most of you probably know, if you're listening to this especially, Pluto was kind of disbarred from the Planet Association. They were kicked out. Because it's a dwarf planet, and those are no longer allowed as... <clears throat> Neil uh, deGrasse Tyson did it personally. As a regular planet. <laughs> did he Did he hit the, the red button to to make it not a planet? <laughs> he, deliver, he delivered the paperwork like he was a process server. So Eris is actually larger than Pluto, uh, and that was just discovered in 2005. Uh, so that's the ninth largest body known to orbit the sun, but also not a planet because it's also reclassified or classified as a dwarf planet. Um, so it, it has a minor planet designation. I mean, if that counts for anything, I don't know. That's sort of like... Uh, um, the maybe, moon is almost a minor planet. It's so big. Like, it's kind of like a hole monitor. It's got like, a, <laughs> you know, it's got a little sticker on it. They like, have, he has some authority, but nothing too great. Yeah. So if you, you might not even know this. So Pluto, uh, the minor planet designator is actually the, like the, the numeric string that goes before the name. So, okay. so Pluto is actually not Pluto. It is one, three, four, three, four, zero Pluto. Oh, fantastic. So now it is not a name, just a number. And I don't know if you guys know that prisoner reference out there, but if you do, I, I'm sure you're laughing along with me. Um, you may know it as a, as a little bit joke from The Simpsons, but they didn't actually call out and say what it was. I'm not just a number. Uh, anyway, what, what that happened in 2005 when Mike Brown discovered Eris is basically that uh, it just added all of this stuff um, the fact that there was no Pluto anymore, which happened in 2006, um, his his discovery basically was the catalyst that that created the the loss of Pluto for its planetary designation. Yeah, and us looking at the solar system a little differently. Something interesting that happened um, the the next year in 2006, uh, which we talked about a little bit last year in our space exploration, was that the very first flight of the SpaceX Falcon One. Uh, was in March of 2006. Very significant because very recently they finally landed a first stage rocket on their floating platform. Just complete badasses these guys are now. Yeah, well, they've come a long way, and it's it's really cool to see the the sort of uh, commercial spaceflight uh, sector grow because, uh, again, as most of you know, and we've done a show on it before, you can go check it out, um, NASA is doing a lot, but is is sort of straying away from from that. Um, whereas they maybe were going to at one point um, do all that stuff themselves. Right, right, and you know it's very interesting the way that it's being approached right now. Um, but I, I just love the the impact of what SpaceX has been able to do by landing the rocket. Think about it. In however many years of space travel that we've had since the very first things were sent up. Uh, we've never been able to recover the rocket that sent the thing up into outer space. The, the rocket has always exploded or it crashes to Earth uh, or it goes into outer space. It never has landed itself so that we can recover it and study it and learn what we're actually doing right to make the rocket work. So this is going to advance uh, spaceflight by so much. 
Sure. Plus, it's a cool lesson plan. You know, like let's let's talk about what we did right. Yeah, totally. Uh, so in uh, Jurassic Park news, uh, in 2005, again, good year for scientific discoveries. Uh, this woman named Mary Higby Schweitzer uh, and her colleagues, they reported that they were actually able to discover soft tissues, blood vessels, other cells inside a fossilized femur of a small T-Rex. So uh, getting us one step closer to, uh, to you know, developing uh, a Jurassic Park and having a, a live... T-Rex model, which is not made out of uh, animatronics and, and metal and plastic, but it, actually a real uh, a real Tyrannosaurus. It really needs to be our duty to make sure that all these scientists watch the movie Jurassic Park so that they understand what will happen if they try to make actual like dinosaur theme parks. Because that's exactly what will happen. Because every single time, it will just be dinosaurs eating people. Michael Crichton was ahead of his time. He is a prophet. But what that does tell us is, uh, is you know, a more closer resemblance to birds and chickens. It gives us uh, some access to scientific information we didn't previously have about the soft tissue components. And a lot of people do know that uh, that's the prevailing theory now, has been for some time. But we're still not 100% sure about this stuff, obviously. So uh, any more of a link that we can get to, uh, to chickens... Is, is pretty cool, and it's pretty cool to think that like uh, T Rex and Velociraptors and all those uh, all those really badass dinosaurs that maybe as a kid you you kind of fantasized about um, and you, you know read books about and saw movies about are really just giant chickens that are carnivorous. Enormous chickens. Chickens are carnivorous. So they're giant yeah. chickens. Yeah, giant chickens with body armor. They probably taste delicious then. I just I'm thinking of T Rex walking around going like bark bark bark, but kind of louder. <laughs> Like more physically aggressive. <laughs> Should we just say that everything tastes like dinosaur now? I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> dinosaur is the original chicken, really. Well, now we could try it. I mean, it's aged uh, quite a long time. Oh boy. We could fry up some. T-Rex. Have you heard of the people who like eat aged mammoth meat? No, I haven't heard of them. Like, like they they find one that w- that's been frozen, so they carve it up and they eat it. Are they still around? Those people? Uh, you know, I mean, I've I've heard of such a thing. They have like some really old case of food poisoning. <laughs> I don't know. It may be it may be a really fun uh, um, urban legend, mm, perhaps. Uh, moving on to 2006, there was a, a big announcement about uh, the existence of dark matter. So, although scientists still couldn't say exactly what it was, what they said was that after weighing gas and stars, that 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 all sort of came together when things were smashing together. Uh, they realized that there must be something else uh, because um, all of that that weight dispersion, etc., doesn't even up, doesn't equal out. So um, they've decided that at this point, based on uh, and there's much more complex uh, scientific uh, inquiry that led to this, obviously, than than me just saying, well, the scales are not uh, adding up correctly, so there must be dark matter in the universe. Regardless, that is a really cool thing because we've we've talked about this before, right? Um, the existence of matter in in the world is what we sort of depend and rely on. That there's a table in front of me, um, and it will stop my hand from going through it. Right, but but just uh, in that in that very sense, there's also other forces that we're not aware of that probably act uh, contrary and uh, uh, in other ways that that we don't understand yet. And dark matter is something that scientists are thinking is probably sort of a invisible um, unseen matter which is why it's called dark but we can sort of prove now that it does exist based on experiments um, that have taken place 
So, I mean, that's kind of a neat thing. Well, yeah, they sort of calculate how much mass there is based on what's around, and then they realize, well, you know, there must be something else out there because, you know, we're not accounting for a great deal of what we expect there to be. And a lot of uh, discoveries are like that, like we mentioned earlier. You're saying, we know that there is something there. We know that there's something there. We know that we haven't discovered it, and we don't know how exactly to illuminate it, but we know that it exists. So that, in and of itself, is one of the, the things that drives science and scientific progress itself, knowing that something exists, but not knowing more about it, right? Right. So, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, and a couple other things. Um, we, we were finally finding and seeing these things called uh, exoplanets in, uh, in 2000 and the early 90s. Uh, they, they found a couple, and they found them in kind of a cool way by looking for uh, a star's wobble, they called it. So if uh, a star dims a little bit when something passes in front of it, then they can determine that that thing passing in front of it, based on uh, how much the star dims, must have a big size in it of itself. Right. So it must be a planet that's really far away that we would have no other way to see because it's not like we have uh, a giant flash you know, on, on our telescopes. Exactly, because planets don't give out light. They only reflect light. So you're only going to be able to see it if you're looking at it, you know, in an, in an angle where it would be reflecting light back to you. And it only reflects light back to its own star. So you're not going to be able to see planets. Uh, it's really kind of an ingenious way because uh, to discover that because what they realized was that, oh, we've got all these nice quality pictures of all these stars, but every once in a while it, it sort of blurs, it flickers at us. It wobbles, as they said. And uh, they realize that, hey, that's actually a planet moving in front of it. And then they're able to measure it by the wobble. And, uh, you know, it's one of the many ways that they use now to find uh, planets and other stars. So think about that a little bit as we progress with our discussion, because one of the things that we'll talk about that's a more recent discovery is uh, how we've actually discovered now a couple planets that are much more similar to Earth. Um, so that'll be something interesting to talk about. Um, we've always talked about, about cyborgs, about androids, about the, the, the mixing, um, and matching of, of our computerized machinery and that kinds of technology with actual human physiology. Um, and it's happened more in this past couple of years, uh, past decade or so than it ever has before. We've had, uh, we've had electrodes and monkeys brains, um, that can actually control like robotic arms that reach for food for them, you know, th that sort of thing. Um, and we've finally been able to, uh, to, to sort of not experiment, but, um, what word am I looking for here? So like those people, like, for example, there's this guy, um, named Pierpaolo Petruziello who, uh, in 2009, he's an amputee and he was able to learn how to control a hand connected to his arm nerves. So he was able to learn how to control it by, you know, sort of process of elimination, um, trial and error, very slowly, after it hooked up to his own nerves, how to move a finger, how to make a fist, um, you know, all that kind of stuff by using his, his thoughts and the intermingling of the actual uh, nerves connected to his own physiology. Nice. Um, so that kind of stuff... That's a little. That's a little more nuts, right? We're thinking um, this stuff isn't in human trials, right? There aren't really cyborgs, but there actually are. <laughs> there actually are. There are a number of people that have been implanted with technology, 
um, whether it be those people that, that just want little electrodes or NFC chips put in their wrists so that they can walk through a building. Did you watch Orphan to Black today? I haven't seen Orphan Black. Oh, they're very big on the uh, modifications and cyborgness. Well, there you go. I'll have to watch it. There's a, there's a group of people in the show that like that a lot. And uh, Orphan Black being a new science fiction show at the time of this broadcast um, is obviously they're going to sh- sort of try to shed a light on that and, and put even more of that kind of stuff in there. Oh, sure. And I look forward to watching it. Um, but to think that you could lose an arm and then have a robotic limb attached to your arm that you can eventually learn to control. Um, now we're, we're approaching, you know, some sort of questions like what if a, an athlete was to lose a limb and then get a limb reattached and then yeah. learn how to control that limb so and that then, it would actually give an advantage over other people. Would he not be allowed to play? Uh, I don't know, but you shouldn't let him like near his girlfriend when he's drunk. This is Ray Rice that we're talking about? No. Um, <laughs> what's his face? The South African runner. Now I can't think of his name. Oh, well, I'm not familiar. But but those kinds of uh, like moral and ethical dilemmas that will present themselves in the next couple of years are what's interesting. Oscar Pistorius is his name. You want to shed a light on that at all? You don't know Oscar Pistorius? Oscar Pistorius is a man who uh, has no legs, essentially. He has, he's a double amputee. Uh, he has two prosthetic uh, legs, which are like, they don't look like legs. They're kind of like flexing, like super fast things for him to run on, basically. Blades, Blades is a good way to put it. Um, so, so he ran really well and he won some kind of records or something? Well, he was going to compete in the Olympics, but they were saying that it wasn't fair because he's, you know, got those modifications. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that he was allowed to compete in the Olympics. So the current precedent then is is those people that, that do have sort of after-body modifications. Oh, he actually did uh, get second place. Oh, wow. In a 400-meter race. Um, but I don't think he got any medals or anything. Huh. So... Um, to this point, then there is no precedent about uh, not allowing those sort of people to compete, for example. Sure. I mean, he won't be allowed to compete anymore, but that's a different reason. <laughs> yeah, well, if he beat his girlfriend, that's sort of inconsequential to us. Well, he um, murdered his girlfriend. <laughs> well, then he beat her pretty well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> beat her with a bullet. Uh, but my point is, uh, with these sorts of, uh, of attachments that are on actual human physiology... Um, moving forward into, let's say, 2020, 2030, you are going to have people that are going to want to participate in uh, professional athletics or uh, the Olympics or things like that. And if they do actually have an advantage over regular humans, um, is that something they should be allowed to compete in? You're not asking me rhetorically. You're asking me literally. Uh, well, sure. What's your opinion on that? Um. I don't know. That's interesting. I, I, I honestly, I don't know because like, um, it's not that much different from allowing steroids in baseball or any other sport. Really, it's allowing somebody to use science to make themselves better than they normally would have been. Well, the, the difference would be that it's not a drug. It's not a PED. It's something that's making you whole again, for example. But then you would you would say like. Uh, say somebody has a, a leg, right, that then has a biomechanical leg attachment attached to it. Uh-huh. Well, I guess you could have one that's like a regular leg, and then you could have one that has sort of advancements. Like a super leg, like a Phil Coulson arm? 
Well, that <laughs> that are that are different. Uh, that are that add additional things that humans don't have. Absolutely, but where what when do you draw the line? Like, do you say, well, only people who have had legitimate accidents are allowed to get these sort of, uh, you know, new limbs that are more powerful than a regular limb? And you're still, yes, you're still allowed to compete. What happens when the first guy, when the first pitcher cuts his arm off to get a bionic arm so that he can, you know, throw 120 miles an hour? Well, that's that's my question that I'm asking you. Uh, and you're, you're right bringing up that uh, there's going to be people that want to push that um, or even inflict bodily harm upon themselves uh, once that technology is available because we may in some respects be um, inferior to the technology. Oh, we certainly will be, and it won't even, you know, we kind of already are. So it becomes elective surgery rather than something that um, is required or um, requested by people that don't have normal functional capacities. Do you, I mean, like plastic surgery, do you think that that'll be a thing someday? What's that? You know, electing to get a bionic arm. Yeah, and we we kind of had a conversation about this in a past podcast too, about like the singularity and... and, uh, um, Ray Kurzweil and all of his thoughts. Eventually, if everyone is sort of slowly being replaced by parts that work for longer than our current parts do, yeah. then everything would be, um, well, eventually it would be sort of an elective surgery. So you're like, well... I don't, I don't think anybody would, you know, would think twice about replacing an eye maybe to get like a really awesome upgrade where you would still see everything, but then like, you know, be able to have a computer inside your vision or something like that. I think a lot of people would go for that and they wouldn't think it's too weird. But it's not really any different than chopping your arm off and getting a new arm. Well, right. And I think we'll be we'll be alive, for example, when this sort of thing starts to happen. And that's going to be some crazy shit. That is definitely going to be some crazy shit. <laughs> um, and again, there, there is some more technology that's come out just recently that's not entire eyes, for example. But, um, but it is something we're going to talk about a little bit later, which is a surgery that I would do, for example. Something really interesting. Odds are you won't need to replace an entire eye. They'll just need to... Put like a microchip you can't even see into your head, and that's it. Well, to a point, except that you know, as people live longer and longer, your body literally degrades and falls apart. So you have well, to yeah. replace it with components that last longer. It's like a car made made with rubber sockets instead of you know steel. I think that that'll be a temporary thing. The people will try to replace bodies for a little while, but it, it, the big benefit will be just placing your consciousness in the cloud. If you'll allow me to use a terrible, you know, setting for that. But you know what I mean? Just kind of like, you know, stored insert in a server. I don't know, like, if you'd like have to have a base. Yeah, I know. Now if we're, you could be a roaming. Now we're moving thing. into a lot of theoretical stuff. Sure. But, but yeah, I, that's go back and listen to the show if you guys haven't heard it. We do talk about some of that. Uh, and Ray Kurzweil, for, for example, he does think that, like, Within this current generation, um, when I speak of uh, people that are currently, um, let's say, 24 to, to 40 years old, should be able to, uh, and even those people older than that, 50, 60, may be able to live forever. I don't necessarily agree with him, but all that would do is it would go forward and forward on marching, replacing body parts or whatever, uh, until eventually they find a solution to uh, capture um, and, and hold, uh, an actual consciousness. And then to your point, Jason, um, you could then duplicate it and, and move it along and then put it in multiple things and you could do all sorts of things with it. Um, and you could even have make mistakes and, uh, you know, 
and then delete it or or destroy <laughs> Restore it. Restore from a previous backup. Right. You can revert to. Uh, you, you're not happy with the how the day went. Just restore it to the previous day. <laughs> Try so, again. So that's some nutty stuff. Um, and just one more thing I wanted to touch on before we before we moved on was the human genome mapped. Uh, so it has actually entirely been uh, mapped. A uh, rough draft in 2000, and then they a com- finished it. Then right? a completed version in 2003. Yeah, and that's so. That's the genome. That does not mean that that is everything that's inside of us and all of the of the different things that make up us. It means that that is what we currently know of as uh, as the uh, the chromosomes. Uh, all 23 molecules of all the human chromosome right. have been mapped and uh, discovered, and we know what what they are, and we know exactly what makes up a human being. But we don't 23 pairs. We don't even necessarily know. Um, what all of them do, and that's sort of what we're, we're we're doing now. What we have done, and and we're experimenting and, and figuring out things um, moving forward. But yeah, so you can see the the progression of things here, even though they weren't necessarily in chronological order of of how we're moving along into um, the 2011 and plus years, uh, already based on this foundation of of some pretty crazy technology. Oh yeah. I mean, right? It's good beer too. I, I didn't like it. Oh yeah. What's next on tap, Dave? Well, I believe next we'll have the uh, the Ballast Point Watermelon Dorado. Fantastic. Well, you still got a little bit more to go there, right? I do, I do. So in the meantime, I'll have a I little... I thought I was drinking it fast, but boy, apparently uh, not. Oh, I had a long day, so you know. <laughs> I'll have a little 312 Urban Wheat Ale. When I was um, in... Uh, a place outside of Peoria. We were at a lake house uh, last weekend, my girlfriend and I. And uh, somebody told me they love 312, right? And they said, uh, I'm wondering, though, in Chicago, do a lot of people actually drink 312? Or is that one of those beers that uh, presents itself as Chicago but is not actually drank there? And I told them, at least in my view, like everywhere I go, I see it on the tappers. And uh, I, I kind of see it as like 312 and Sam Adams being the lowest things on the totem pole at places <laughs> at places where they don't have Bud Light and Coors Light and Budweiser and well, places that really only carry that still would carry like a 312. Oh, that's what I mean. Yeah. So uh so where it's, it's the highest thing on the totem pole. Right. So it's either it's either either it's up the there lowest or the highest yeah. beer at the bar. But it's definitely You're probably right. It's definitely drank a lot around Chicago though cuz it's a Goose I Island so. beer. And they put it in cans, which makes it like 50% better than it previously it's, was. It's it's like the beer at lots of um you know, like big events, like if you're at a concert or, or a place where you're only buying one, where they only sell one kind of beer, like a lot of times if it's not going to be a Miller Lite, Bud Light, then it's 312. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. You yeah, know, it's not bad. It's not if bad. I have to buy a $12 beer, as long as it's 24 ounces of 312, I can handle that. It better be 24 ounces if it's $13. Well, you know, the closer you get to the lake, the more expensive everything is. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so we talked about a lot of the things that have uh, happened very quickly through the late 90s all the way up to 2008, 2009. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to uh, touch on now is the, the real meat and potatoes of this show, right? It's just the, the real important discoveries, arbitrarily, of course, that I've picked out from the past five years. No, this is the top 10, period, Dave. These are the top 10. Nothing else is more important than that. Well, there are a couple that I struggled over, and maybe I can uh, you know, bring you guys into that if we have enough time to see if, they sh- if you think they should have made the list or not. But for the time being, here's what we have. So in 2011, sort of going in reverse chronological order. Um, no, the- that's actual chronological order. Uh, it depends if you're ascending or descending, I suppose. <laughs> I've been playing too much with drop-down menus. and I don't, know, I don't know which direction you go through time, but the rest of us go one way. All right. <laughs> I, I think I got you there. I go multiple ways. It gets all timey-wimey and wibbly-wobbly. Wibbly-wobbly. Oh, I'm jealous. Uh, so in 2011, uh, the world's first malaria vaccine was developed at Oxford University. Uh, against the malaria parasite. So you know the malaria parasite uh, is sort of uh, something that's transmitted via mosquito bites and uh, and I think some other things, but mainly mosquito bites in a lot of um, of regions that are uh, undeveloped swampy. and very jungly and swampy. Yeah. So I think it happens a lot uh, like in Africa and, and maybe in South Central America. Central America, South America. Dude, I mean, they used to have malaria problems in Florida and Georgia and stuff before they learned how to control it up here. Sure. So this vaccine cuts the risk of infection by nearly half, um, which is pretty cool, not only because of that, but because this is the first vaccine against the human parasite um, at that time, uh, which infects millions of children's per, children per year. Yeah. Children's. It affects all the children. All the children's. It affects all the children. <laughs> so uh, as an update, since this, of course, is 2011, and I went and looked up how it's done, <clears throat> there's actually been a couple <clears throat> other uh, vaccines that have been developed. They all have different uh, success rates, etc. Um, and unfortunately, this particular vaccine uh, has found to still be uh, usable and um, to provide some protection, but it's not a very high amount like that. It really atrophies after a short amount of time. So it still hasn't been approved by the World Health Organization for regular use. And we're really wondering now, you know, is this something that was kind of inflated and worked in a small lab environment and won't translate to something in a larger place? I'm not sure. But what this did bring about is uh, a whole group of people that developed multiple different kinds of vaccines, which now I'm pretty sure one of them is about to exit field testing and be implemented um, in the real world. So it's, Excellent. it's good stuff. Uh, this, it's one of those things where this kind of brought on research from a lot of other people and it might not end up being this one that actually is the vaccine that's produced, uh, and put out there, but who cares? Because uh, all of this, uh, research is what led to the actual discovery of whatever the, the, uh, most successful or more successful vaccine is. Yeah. Can I give you a runner up for the year? My, my completely random Arbitrary runner-up. Okay. <laughs> so for me, uh, something that was kind of interesting was that uh, in 2011, scientists first linked the decline in the honeybee population to the increased use in cell phones and things like that. And they think that all of the uh, like electromagnetic networks in the air are like fucking with animals, and especially bees, because bees had been disappearing at like prolific rates, uh, you know, at the turn of the decade, and nobody knew why. So, you know, as gardeners, you know, recreationally, we 
need bees. You know, they're important. And we, I, I certainly noticed over a couple of years that there was like none all year long. They, they've made a little bit of a rebound in this area lately, but um, honeybees freaking disappearing. That would be catastrophic to, uh, you know, the food crop of the world. Yeah, you know, I think bees are coming back, and I did they ever discover exactly what the issue was? Because it's obviously not cell phones. Well, maybe they got used to them. <laughs> maybe they finally learned how to deal with it. Yeah, well... But like is, I said, it's an arbitrary, completely... Yeah, and it's interesting to think about uh, radio waves, etc. We walk around uh, only seeing the things that we can that we can uh, see with our eyes, what wavelengths we can, can see, but a lot of other animals and things can see a lot of other things going on. Right, they can perceive other things, just other like you spectrums, have, yeah. you know, five senses, uh, you know, they may be able to sense uh, electromagnet, electromagnetic fields and shit like that. Like, there's birds that... Mag- that navigate with uh, the Earth's magnetic field. So certainly, at some at some point, in some capacity, we're probably screwing around with some of these animals that um, that can can look at those things and see what we're adding as like man made spectrum. Right. If you relied on some inner sense that always told you where North was, and then all of a sudden there's a very strong magnet off to your east, you're gonna think that that way is North, and everything's gonna be weird for you. Right. Um. So, let's talk about quantum teleportation, which is really cool. Hell yeah. So, I was a big Star Trek fan uh, back in the day when I was growing up, and transporters were one of the coolest things because you could have a ship in, in like a low orbit, and then you could transport a group of people onto the ground of that planet, or onto a neighboring ship, or into a little shuttlecraft, or something like that. And that solves a lot of problems. The transportation of matter is something that we haven't really gotten to yet and i'll talk about that in a bit but we're just starting to understand not master but understand uh quantum mechanics uh and those properties and how they work in science for example there was another runner-up that i would say i don't know if it was this year or a different year than we're talking about but quantum computing um the theory of uh quantum entanglement is something that i was always really interested in and what that is is you know you look at these quantum particles that are sort of tied together no matter where they are. So you have one quantum particle and another that's exactly the same, regardless of where it is distance-wise, if it's 60 miles or 600 miles or six feet away from it, if you do something to that one particle, then the other particle that's you know some other distance away from it also does that thing. Right. So it has the same effect. That makes it really neat. And it seems like we still don't really understand why that is, but it's one of those things where we're just going to play around with it until we can figure it out. Oh, yeah. So in this experiment, uh, there were two teams of researchers, one from China and the other from Austria, uh, and this is in 2012. And there was a a world record that they broke by teleporting quantum particles more than 50 miles through the air. Um, And so basically, they're using a third particle to like hold the characteristics of uh, another particle and beaming it to the remote copy. So they are teleporting data, not matter, but information. Okay. And and the interesting thing about that is uh, the applications that that could bring in the immediate future, for example, are teleporting data via like in a communication aspect from spies or governments or or even regular people. Uh, could communicate to each other using a quantum network. And they even talk about a quantum internet as something that might happen eventually. Um, 
so, definitely would be more secure than regular internet. Right. And so the United States, I'm sure, is testing stuff. China says they uh, plan to send a quantum information satellite in 2016. I'm not sure that has actually launched yet. Um, but basically, this kind of makes it a tech race among a bunch of countries because uh, right now, if someone is to send communications via the regular internet, regardless of how good their encryption is, there's always the possibility and a likelihood, a certain amount of likelihood, that an opposing government or opposing force or hacker group or whatever could intercept those communications. But if you're sending them via quantum teleportation, it's probably not very likely that <laughs> that people are going to intercept your message, at least at this point in time, when hardly anyone even knows what that is, much less is able to, you know... So intercept. what you're saying is the NSA already has this? Well, anything we talk about, um, for the most part, unless it's all public, act, like public knowledge... Um, the whole time in the cycle has probably already been uh, discovered by the the very very large um, and heavy science governments like the United States. Right. Quite a bit ago. Sure. Sure. Mm. So uh, my question for you is: uh, One, do you think that tech race is actually a real thing, and that like this whole quantum teleportation network for data is going to be something we talk about a lot in the next couple of years when these satellites actually start launching? Um, and two, do you think the teleportation of actual matter across great distances will ever be possible? And if so, um, how, how close are we to that kind of goal? Um, I think that we have a lot to learn about quantum everything right now, and it's going to take a long time to do that. And so I think that a lot of sort of practical uses of this technology is going to be like 50 years off, 100 years off, that sort of thing. I well, don't think I, that it's going to be something I, that... I disagree with that number just because I feel like, you know, 50 years, there's going to be some... There's going to be ridiculous things in 50 years. I don't think it's ridiculous to think that, you know, it would take us 50 years to really understand how to use quantum mechanics and quantum physics to our advantage. Well, we've had this conversation too, right? In that same show, the one about Kurzweil and the singularity, when you look at, uh, let's say, 20 years ago, it's 1996, Right which is like right after the internet came out. Sure. And then there were there weren't really cell phones, there weren't like uh, there weren't a lot of things that we that we take for granted now. So that's 20 years. I think 50 years is is too large of a number. But I asked you the question and I appreciate your answer. <laughs> um in 2012 another thing that's very sciencey um it's, and so in in kind of hard to understand. Uh, but I'm going to try to explain it as much as I can. Um, in 2012, they actually discovered the God particle in quotations, which was the seven, the last of 17 elementary particles that make up the standard model of physics. So physicists for a long time, they, they theorized that there were a certain amount of particles that make up everything. We're talking about like quarks, uh, were the, like sort of the last one before this. Right. Right. So you have, uh, like there's electrons and neutrons and protons, like, you know. Yeah. And then we, we were in chemistry, for example, and physics in uh, high school, they were just discovering quarks. Yeah. I mean, you know, we graduated high school in 2000 and so much has changed since then. Right. And what we were learning wasn't like going to be cutting edge by any means. Well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not. I'm not asking you to defend the high school either, or, or our learning matrix. Just that. No, I'm just saying, like the the advancements since what we've been taught in school are, you know, monumental. 
Yeah, so a lot of people are familiar with the LHC, which is the Large Hadron Collider, um, and this is this uh, huge thing that runs uh, larger than any any other scientific place that at least I know of in the world uh, that just accelerates particles really, really quickly and then crashes them together uh, to discover what the results of those uh, collisions are. Um, and they're trying to find uh, smaller and smaller particles that make up the existence of the universe. Um, so they finally discovered what they thought was the final piece in the standard model of physics, which is the Higgs boson particle, right? And they, they made all these, uh, these um, uh, hypotheses about like what this thing would be and how it would uh, behave and all that. And they actually got upset um, some of the physicists when they discovered this particle and it behaved exactly how they thought it would and it was exactly what they thought it would be and it was kind of boring. So <laughs> this giant celebration that they had was sort of... That's not sciencey at all. Well, and what they were expecting to have happen, right, is that there would be multiple questions that came out of it which would lead them to the discovery of something else. And right when they discovered it, they actually shut down the whole collider so that there'd be upgrades and prepare, uh, uh, repairs on it and so that they could try to you know dig down even deeper. But according to the standard model, there isn't any deeper to dig down. So they may have already discovered the, the lowest level, that 17th elementary particle. You're previewing my uh, runner-up here, Dave. I like that. <laughs> uh, and, and so... Um, and so now they think that perhaps there are multiple Higgs boson particles, maybe five of them, maybe three of them, maybe seven of them, whatever. Um, and so now they want to try to continue to make the collider more powerful and discover uh, even smaller particles or other particles in the same family that they haven't yet discovered. Um, but basically, there has to be, there has to be other things that, that make up the universe. And if this theory is no longer good enough, or if we've reached the bottom, then that means that there are other theories that are going to come in that will probably end up being more um, pervasive into the community and uh, will put more money behind researching. So, um, I mean, we've talked about this for a long time, and I, I don't mean me being you and I, although we probably have at some point, sure. but the scientific community and everyone interested in science has said, uh, where is this God particle? This God particle is going to teach us so much. Like we're going to find out all these things once we find it. And now we found it and everyone's like, what's the next thing? Maybe they don't know how to read it right. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, it, that's what science is all about. It's discovery. So we'll figured out eventually. So these stubbornly normal particles will have to revisit uh, in 2015 uh, the collider was brought back up as a little bit of an update. Uh, and now they're running more experiments and trying to dig down deeper or uh, cast a wider web to try to find other members, perhaps, of the Higgs boson particle family. Um, in your runner-up you were talking about? My runner-up is James Cameron, who went to the uh, <laughs> deepest part of the ocean on March 25th of 2012. <clears throat> James Cameron, what a what a awesome guy, right? Yes, James Cameron's scientific breakthroughs. Fantastic, Cameron. Mr. Cameron, people should know how you saved us all, how you raised the bar. How will they know what a hero you are? 
James Cameron doesn't do what James Cameron does for James Cameron. James Cameron does what James Cameron does because James Cameron is James Cameron. <laughs> I'm so glad I allowed that to occur. <laughs> so that's a little bit from South Park if you guys have never uh, seen that episode. Oh, it worked perfectly. As soon as I saw James Cameron, I was like, oh, I know what a, I know what the uh, runner-up will be. Well, that's a good one. Okay, on to 2013, are we? Sure. So in, in 2013, uh, in, this is uh, sort of hedging back to what we talked about with the uh, mechanical limbs, for example, where people are actually, in 2009, that one fellow who has a really long name that begins with P, and I think an alliterative last name, that it would be impossible for me to recall based on sheer memory at this point. Um he had the mechanical arm attached that he was actually able to control. Um, it was attached to his nerve endings, and then he controlled it through some synaptic stuff in his brain. Well, back in February of 2013, researchers said they had established an electronic link between the brains of two rats. First of all, let me say that whatever it is that they were thinking to each other was probably not really worthy of being It probably broadcast. had a lot to do with cheese. <laughs> so what they were able to do with some experiments is they were able to basically uh, help one solve the other, uh, help one rat solve the puzzle while the other rat wasn't in it. So perhaps, and I don't know the details, um, I'm assuming, I'm looking at this in my mind and I'm saying, maybe there was a rat like that was just watching the other rat in a maze and he's like, well, he can't find the cheese. So he's just going the wrong way. So he's, Just go left, dude, left. So they're like, Hank, just think really hard about which directions he should go. <laughs> See, this makes it really difficult for me to imagine because I'm not imagining that these rats are like, uh, turn right, then left, then, you know, it's it's not as easy as one human telling the other human during a game of keep talking and no one explodes how to solve a maze, for example. Are there any vowels in the serial number? Right. And Morse code, that'd be really hard for rats, I'm imagining. They probably don't know. No, Morse why code. isn't a vowel? Rats don't know if why is a vowel or not. And these rats were apparently separated by thousands of miles. So... How cool is it, first of all, that the scientists are coming up with experiments where one rat in Georgia is talking to another rat in Illinois uh, <laughs> about like how to find the cheese? Those rats must be like the most popular rats in the scientific rat community. Oh sure, you know they're like the, you know the Neil deGrasse rats, and <laughs> I, it's fine. It works. Um, so they established a connection later between the brain of a human and a rat. Can you imagine that? I, I wonder which direction that conversation went. Was it the rat talking to the human or the human talking to the rat? I don't think that we could understand uh, what a rat was saying to us. I don't even think that you would get, like, voices or anything. It's not like that's how it would work, right? Well, they have that thing you put around the neck of dogs and then it'll say whatever it says in English. Sorry, Dave Simpsons did it with the babies and all that <laughs> stuff. Well, it was from the Pixar movie Up and the dog's like, squirrel. Anyway. Oh. Uh, it makes sense. Uh, but I don't think they would do rat to human because I don't know how the rat could help us as humans solve a problem. But the human might be able to like think up or something. I don't know. It'd be interesting to look into this experiment and see what exactly was being transmitted between these two minds. The point of this is that once they were able to establish a rat to rat relationship and a uh, human to rat relationship, we're assuming, then they were actually able to do a human-to-human -human brain interface. So 
once they have a human-to-human brain interface, and I think this was very rudimentary, at least at first when it was initially discovered and experimented with, uh, you could sort of uh, tell someone what number you were thinking or like what direction maybe you were thinking of. Um, and so you have uh, synaptic impulses of the brain translated um, and then sent over to someone else to uh, probably enable those same uh, uh, centers of the brain or stimulate them in such a way... Well, I suppose if they're trying to get them to communicate, wouldn't they connect the communication sections of the brain then? Um, yeah, but... I'm just trying to puzzle this out in my head. Like, well, you know how... You're not sending a command to the other person, right? Well... I'm not thinking, raise my right arm, and you go like this, raising your right arm. I, it, it could be to that point at this point. I mean, this has advanced now since 2013, and they know how to do that as well. So what they do is, you know, when they do brain surgeries, for example, they lift up the, the skull flap of the human and they have access to the brain. So a lot yeah. of times they'll they'll go in there and they'll figure out like where exactly they are based on what they're pressing and what things people are viewing and saying. Right. I know. I've seen ones where like they want you to keep talking so that they can locate that part of the brain. Sure. So if, if they can, if, if the person's brain in basic senses, like movement, for example, like you discussed... Uh, are, are located in similar geographical sections of the brain, then stimulating the same synapse and same area of the brain in someone else's head might elicit the same response. So maybe they could do a lift your right arm, think about lifting up your right arm, and then the other person lifts it up, yeah. which would be pretty insane. So now that we have... You make me lift up my left arm and smack me. Cut it out. <laughs> now that we have that technology, you know, I think of it being used in a lot of different ways. Um interrogations for example uh maybe psychological uh, psychologists uh you know that kind of thing you could look into and discover memories or maybe pull them out um uh, get someone to uh, uh, i don't know uh, there's a lot of stuff that you could possibly do even mind control um for example eventually uh, i think that perhaps we could go to a point where someone could put on um, some kind of apparatus that was connected to someone else, wirelessly or not. Um, and if you're able to really have mind-to-mind -mind communication and then one step more than that communication would be uh, transmitting thoughts that their brain uh, enacted as things that they were thinking themselves. I wonder if you would be able to tell the difference <laughs> between your thoughts and the thoughts being beamed into your head. Uh, that's a very interesting, uh, comment and, and I guess that's something we can revisit too eventually, but that's, that's some kind of crazy stuff right there is those are things, uh, and we talked about a lot of things that are, that are kind of, uh, ethical or moral dilemmas, but that kind of stuff is what you would assume, right? That like the government has been looking at for quite a long time, because that's something that they probably think could help them in a lot of different capacities. And there's actually been shows about this kind of mind control and things like that. I think there was one story starring George Clooney. <laughs> <laughs> about mind control? Yeah. I'd miss that one. Uh, but there's been a lot of, uh, of, of things um, in the past that the, the government has been accused of doing um, that people might think are conspiracies, etc. But like remote viewing, for example. Are you familiar with remote viewing? Uh, how do you mean? So this is something that people have said the government has had for a long time where they have people that are able to kind of have out of body experiences, uh, the, the sort like of minority report. N well, no, the, that would be different. No, this would be like current time 
So like you're someone who sort of has this whatever uh, psychic ability to kind of go out of your own head and go look at like something that's happening somewhere else and then report back that information. There have been um, things unclassified, in fact, about people that have actually done this in the government, in the United States government itself in the past. Now, whether or not that was a sort of a failed experiment of the 60s or 70s or something that was just thrown out there to make people crazy and, you know, talk about these kinds of conspiracies and things. Um, it actually is out there that remote viewing is something that people uh, have done or currently do. Uh, and that's not exactly the same as controlling a mind. Um, that's, that's a little bit different. Uh, so 2013, the other uh, item that I wanted to talk about was uh, Voyager 1 uh, has, has left our, uh, our well, um, everything that we know about as, as our area of view right now. Right, our solar system. So it's called like the heliosphere or something like that? Yes, the heliosphere is the sphere of influence of the sun. So now that it's gone, unfortunately... The magnetic sphere, that uh, is. Unfortunately, it can't send JPEG pictures anymore because the camera doesn't work. Or at least that's what they tell us. <laughs> <laughs> no, they took some pictures of some crazy shit they don't want us to see. But uh, we are able to get some readings and things from it. And it's actually still transmitting and giving us some interesting um, readings that currently are kind of testing our theories of what it is like outside of that sphere of influence. All right. Well, you know, I, you know, it, it's going to take a long time before it leaves. Uh, what is it? The, um, what's, what's the, all the asteroids around the outside of the, uh, solar system. I don't remember, but the Oort cloud, that's what it is. Yes. Um, but I, I think it's kind of a neat accomplishment, you know, but even saying so, this is something that was made in the 70s. So this is something that doesn't really have any real kind of technology that we can use at this point. It's really just cool that something that was built that long ago by us has gone farther than anything else that we've ever created. And it's still working and it's still going. Right. So that's neat. So their parts must come from Sears or something, you know, not like shipped over from China. <laughs> um. Do you, do you have any you wanted to bring up from 2013? Uh, one of the more interesting events that happened in 2013 was the uh, Tunguska asteroid event that happened over Russia when a 10-ton asteroid blew up and like everyone in Russia who was driving at the time caught it on their dashboard cam. So for the first time in history, you had one of these uh, events happen in real time and it was recorded with, you know, Orders of magnitude of more, you know, recording devices than ever would have been possible in the past. Um, so, you know, it's just another one of those great leap forwards in science just because all of a sudden there's a vast amount of information available. Yeah. Um, and that was pretty interesting. Uh, on the same day, we had a very close flyby. Uh, so that was a 10-ton asteroid. There was a very close flyby, only 17,000 miles away. That's within some satellite orbits, uh, I think. It was um, a 130,000 ton uh, asteroid. So very, uh, very, very large. That'd be a planet killer, I'm sure. Very large indeed. Um, Okay, so moving on to 2014, and uh, let's get a new beer open for that. All right.
So, the Ballast Point Watermelon Dorado. Double India Pale Ale with natural flavors. I have had a watermelon... Uh, oh, I think it was one of these, maybe. At Kuma's Corner, I want to say. Huh. The Watermelon Dorado, right? Yeah, they had the Pineapple Sculpin and like a Habanero Sculpin. And then they had a, a Dorado. And then the Dorado with uh, with some flavors. I think the watermelon's the only one they have right now. Um, oh no, I had the Hell or High Watermelon from Twenty First Amendment. Okay, another another uh, good brewery. I love their cans, Twenty First Amendment, but um, I'm a big fan of Ballast Point because they make some uh, kicking IPAs. This one's nice and dark. I like that. Well, I had never had this until like last weekend, and uh, you know we're in the Midwest, so it hasn't been that warm. Except last weekend, it got really warm. So it was like 85 degrees out, and I was out at a lake house, and this ended up being the perfect beer. I got my sort of uh, high-gravity IPA fix, but it was also more refreshing than it normally would be. <laughs> it is kind of refreshing. It has a nice little fruity flavor to it. But that's not a bad thing. It, it works. It works with it. Okay, so... Uh, thinking talk- about the taste a lot. It, it makes me think of. <laughs> Talking about 2014, scientific discoveries. Uh, something we brought up before was um, all about how we were starting to view exoplanets, the planets that are outside of our solar system, that are harder or, or impossible almost to discover because there's no light that they're emitting. Well, we've found really, really good ways to locate them. And we've actually found a couple that are sort of like Earth. In fact, a couple of years before this, there was one called Kepler-22 or, or something like that that was another sort of Earth-like uh, planet. But in 2014 in April, they discovered a planet called Kepler-186f. And it's supposed to be the most Earth-like planet that we've yet discovered. It's the same size roughly as Earth. It's at the same like distance roughly from its, from, uh, its parent star, which is kind of like our sun, to have liquid water. So it's going to have a similar climate. It's going to be a similar size. There's, uh, we we want to think that there's like a similar amount of sort of land to water ratio, but we haven't been able to determine those kinds of things just yet. Um, so this guy, Tom Barclay, uh, a research scientist working with uh, NASA's Kepler mission, which is why it's named Kepler. All these planets are that are discovered uh, from this particular mission. Uh, he says that the real reason we're doing this is to answer the question, are we alone? And I think that I think that uh, we want to go uh, places that are just like Earth because we're drawn to these kinds of planets because we think that uh, life happened here uh, based on these variables with these conditions. So if we find other places that have the same variables and conditions, then invariably, eventually, we'll find some kind of similar or in similar, uh, in similar, is that a, is that a word? <laughs> uh, or non-similar life Maybe forms. a cousin or something like that. But we're saying, uh, the based on our capacity of thought towards life, which is, these are the things that make up life. This is the stuff that's needed for life. Then we're going to find a place that's like our Earth, that has those things to try to find life. So... It's going to take us a really long time to go there and to find out more information about it. But it's neat because it means that it hasn't been that long of a search to locate it. 
So if you're talking about these things uh, from a it mathematical really perspective, yeah. that means that there's a lot of these. There has to be mathematically a ton of these planets that are very similar to Earth because of uh, you know how easy it was to locate several different planets that have similar um, traits. So that's good news for everyone out there that wants to discover or interact with uh, extraterrestrial life because if in fact um, it is our planet's uh, traits and variables that are necessary for the development of life uh, in the universe, then we have now discovered multiple places that have those same traits. And mathematically speaking, we'll discover much more, probably, uh, you know, in a much quicker pace now that we know, now we know what to look for. Yeah, we know what to look for. We know how to look for it. So I would expect these uh, to come up much more rapidly. Um uh, another thing is that hydrogen fuel is getting more viable for us. So in 2014, uh, chemists made this breakthrough in their attempts to create hydrogen fuel from water. Um, this is one of the things that we discuss sometimes too, uh, is we have all of these ways to create, um, to create fuels and these fuels that can give us energy by burning them or expending them in some way. But a lot of the ones that we're currently using, at least fossil fuels like oil, etc., are, are not helping the environment. They're not really sustainable. So hydrogen is something that would work really well as sort of a more sustainable, better fuel because you're able to create hydrogen fuel from water. And they were able to store the gas. And uh, I mean, if it could take over the, the usage of petroleum and oil in cars, then it can make it an unbelievable lifesaver for not only the environment, but also for, um, eventually anyway, um, uh, people's wallets and, uh, and for the well-being of everybody. Oh, certainly. So renewable energy, that's a topic that's going to take a quite a while for, um, for, for there to be real answers for. We have things that we can generate power from that don't really take a lot from, uh, from the earth, like solar power, for example, and hydropower uh, and hydrogen um, fuels, like the one that we just spoke of. But we are not to a point yet where that can replace the things that we currently have with uh, the same cost and uh, same efficiency. So um, at what point does that happen? Is this something that will just slowly gain uh, steam until it's something that uh, will forcibly take over all of the other sources of, uh, of fuel? Because a lot of people say that, you know, the environment has already reached a point where it cannot come back from that. So if that's true, then why does any of this really matter? Well, I mean, it's just like asking a cancer patient, why do you bother, like, trying to treat your disease? You're going to die from it. Like, most people want to try and do whatever they can to make, you know, to make it at least a little bit better. Um, but I think that hydrogen is going to be something that uh, can be viable and, you know, used on a larger scale uh, in certain applications for sure, you know, within the next five to ten years for sure, definitely. Well, that's going to be something fun. And I'm sure there'll be, uh, you know, a series of missteps along with that. But I look forward to a more sustainable, uh, cleaner, renewable uh, energy replacing oil. And uh, any other 2014 uh, breakthroughs you want to mention? Um, well, in 2014, we did do something really awesome in space. We landed a uh, probe on a comet. 
and like took information and sent the information back. Um, so, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty badass, I gotta say. So it was like, um, uh, Armageddon. Yes, like Armageddon without the nuclear weapons. But Bruce Willis could have done it. Bruce Willis did do it, you didn't hear? <laughs> it was Bruce Willis and Steve Buscemi. And uh, Ben Affleck uh, got to come home at the end of it. Well, that's terrific. <laughs> um, that is an impressive feat, though, to, to be able to land one thing on another thing, both of which are uh, these these crazy things that are moving all around separately in space. Hurling through space at yeah thousands of miles per hour. Yep. Um, so 2015, just this last year, in fact, we're only, you know, four and three quarter months into 2016. So pretty close to happening now, um, is a bionic lens. And we talked earlier about this. If you're replacing, um, body parts themselves, this is kind of, uh, something that's along those lines. So it wouldn't be replacing the eye, the entire eye, but a lens is a part of the eye. Currently, when they do surgeries, like LASIK surgery, for example, they will go in and make incisions and remove like uh, microscopic uh, layers of things that exist on an eye. But they don't actually replace components of the eye with some other kind of component. So this company called Acumentic Technology um, has promised an eight-minute surgery to provide patients with bionic lenses that can improve eyesight to three times better than 2020 vision. So not only is this something that can replace LASIK surgery in people that, let's say, are, um, uh, what do you call it? Nearsighted, yeah, right? Nearsighted or yeah. farsighted or whatever, uh, and have issues with their, with their own eyes lenses. But it could also be something that people would, just a regular person, commit to as an elective surgery. And again, this could be the first kind of thing that, that is, um, is really something people bring up uh, about competitors, for example, not not like track and field or anything like that, but there could be very strong um, arguments as to why uh, certain people might not be allowed to compete in uh, events, for example, right? If they have three times better vision than a normal person, you'd be able to see the ball really well when you're, you know, you could tell the difference between a curve and a fastball immediately if you were playing baseball and this could be an elective surgery that only ends up costing a couple thousand dollars which means it's not outside the realm of anybody in the united states to save up and purchase sure. uh, or anywhere else in the world for that matter um so i've read more about this and it looks like this is something that actually will come to fruition in the next five years or so you'll be able to go maybe not a mall kiosk at first like lasik currently has but in the in the early days of lasik you you could go to you know a uh an actual business and go in, uh, sign in, uh, make an appointment, and half an hour later come out with uh, um, with your eye like bandaged, and then the next day or whatever you would remove it and, and be back to sort of normal. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So to to have something like this that's now an elective procedure, um, even for those people that don't have problems with their eyes, I mean, heck, you think about. Uh, the United States government, the Air Force, for example, right? It requires pilots to not have any uh, issues with their eyes. They must have 20-20 vision. You can't have glasses and be a pilot in the Air Force. In the Air Force, right. Um, now, what if they are, are requiring people after this kind of thing to get this surgery in order to be a pilot at all? You have to have 10-20 vision. Exactly. <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, that's going to uh, start putting restrictions on people that are outside of their own capacity to control even more than genetics. They'd have to actually go spend money to have some kind of procedure done, which changes them uh, ever so slightly, but does change them to not someone that's completely human. Um. Well, I mean, that's true. I guess you're going to have to define exactly what a human is if you're going to concern yourself with what is and what isn't a human. Well, this is the same kind of thing. I don't thing mean as... you specifically. I mean, that's something that society will have to do yeah i mean I, I would say this would still be considered human it's the same thing as getting like an artificial uh heart or like a an implant of some sort or you know some kind of uh sure people get that stuff all the time right so I, i'm just that i'm saying for a long time in in some capacity uh that that lens is no longer it's not something that you were born with and it's not something that exists in nature right so that's interesting um First new antibiotic in 30 years, which is great news. So there was an antibiotic discovered just um, earlier in 2015 that could be the foundation for a whole bunch of new antibiotics. And we all know, uh, right, there's this huge issue, this huge problem about these viruses um, that are becoming resistant to the current antibiotics that we use. Superbugs. And part of the reason why they're becoming resistant is because we are using antibiotics uh, way more than we might, way more than we should be, according to should be, yeah. some people. Um, I mean, in according some to smart people. Well, I, in some cases, you need to use antibiotics. And you need Absolutely, to... and they're there to be used. Uh, the trouble is that they're overused. And but that's something that you know, if you go to the doctor and you ask for antibiotics, they'll give them to you. I mean, it would be difficult for a doctor to be like. I will not prescribe these to you because I'm worried that in 15 years there will be a superbug. <laughs> well, but I think that yeah, I mean doctors are more worried about immediate consequences than they are about stuff like that. Well, but it is they're it is, a doctor. They shouldn't ever tell you that you can't have a drug that can help you in any case. But when we have these new antibiotics and we find new antibiotics that can help that may not have the sort of restrictions as the old ones, uh, they may not have the tolerances uh, that were already built up to by viruses. It's important for us to realize that viruses are living creatures uh, that that are very small. I mean, we don't interact with them on an everyday basis. We don't eat lunch with them. We don't see them at the gym, you know. But they, they still are like evolving life forms that exist here on this planet with us. And viruses could very much end up being the thing that, that wipes out the entire human race. So, oh, sure. to your point, it's important that um, you know that, that everybody be conscious of uh, of future generations and not just um, you know use every possible way to combat something that maybe might go away on its own. That said, I think my point's still valid that like you know some sixty year old guy that walks in and has an infection. He's going to get antibiotics because it, at some point, the antibiotics could actually save you. If he needs it, then absolutely. The trouble is that it gets prescribed when people don't actually need it. Well, need is a tough line to draw. It's I mean, not necessarily like, you know, infections hypochondriacs can... and doctors in America. It's places in the third world where, like, people just go to the store and buy them and take them when they're not supposed to at all. Yeah. You know that's the sort of thing that's gonna that's gonna create the the 
drug, you know, the antibiotic resistant stuff is where there's a large amount of people doing that. You know, I'm sure that here maybe that you could have a problem, but uh, for the most part, it's going to be taken care of responsibly. But in areas where, like, I remember when we were kids, um, my neighbor would talk about how she would go to Mexico and buy amoxicillin and other antibiotics uh, for her kids because you could just go to the store and buy them and then she could just prescribe them or just give them to her kids when they had an ear infection instead of taking them to the doctor. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's smart, but like that's, you know, that happening on a very large scale is what causes it to be rampant and, you know, and grow out of control. Well, perhaps, but it's also because it's the first new antibiotic in 30 years. I mean, they were they had all of these things that they that they developed and they found, but then there was no more uh development uh, or uh or additional antibiotics found during that time. So for the past 30 years, we've been using the same ones. So, I mean, it is cool that there's a focus now on trying to discover some other drugs that might work in the same capacity that don't have the tolerances. And um, this new drug uh, might end up being one that uh, prevents us from the situation that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, And then in in 2015, we also uh, discovered... Now, this happened uh, earlier, like back in the 2000s, where people were saying, you know, maybe there's water on Mars. Um, we had um, uh, Curiosity, which was the Mars rover landing on the planet, and it was able to drill into polar ice caps to discover uh, that there was at some point, you know, um, some kind of, of uh, water on the planet. And it was, at this point, it's, it's frozen doesn't really contain any life forms necessarily. But in 2015, they discovered that there were these molecules called uh, perchlorates. And I guess, uh, and I'm no, no expert on, you know, uh, biology, especially interstellar biology. <laughs> um, but I guess according to what scientists are saying, that the presence of these kinds of molecules is not dictating but suggesting that there could actually be or have been living organisms on the planet. So we know that not only were there polarized caps, but at one point, based on these uh, streaks of water that they can find on the planet, there was flowing water. And liquid water is one of the things, like I mentioned earlier, that we at least think, um, as a scientific community, is necessary, perhaps, for the existence and... uh, um, for life to to be developed or to be created or to uh, explode into existence in some way. Yeah. So now we know that um, we're pretty sure that there's life stuff up there that like indicates that maybe there has been life or was life or life was created and it died or whatever. Um, and there was liquid water as well on Mars. So these, these things... Um, you know, they kind of blow your mind because when, when I was back in school and I'm in certain, like when my dad was back in school, et cetera, back in the sixties, like they never would have, of really dreamt of that outside of, you know, Isaac Asimov or science, science fiction comic books that there would be these Martian creatures. <laughs> of course it was, it was all over the place, but it wasn't ever thought of as real. Well, yeah, I mean. And it's not, you know, green men from Mars that take me to your leader. 
Of course, it's bacteria and stuff like that. And we haven't actually found it on Mars necessarily, but there's evidence that it's out there and that, you know, one of the popular theories is that, you know, in the early bombardment of Earth, that's how life got here. Makes a lot of sense to me. So do you have any uh, um, 2015? Um, not really. Um, one of the, you know, the thing that I'm most excited about lately is something that I did bring up earlier, which was, um, the landing of the Falcon 9 rocket on the, uh, on the floating drone ship, mm-hmm. which has the best name, a better name than Bodie McBoatface, by the way, <laughs> is of course, I still love you is the name of the drone ship that they, uh, landed the rocket on. I think it's so stupid that they named the ship that, by the way. Actually, they uh, just today decided <laughs> that they would not be actually naming the ship Bodie McBoatface. Good, because it's a stupid name. Well, I think the internet's angry, but the internet is biased. The internet is stupid, too. Yeah. Sorry, internet. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, Way to appeal to the masses, Dave. Yeah, that's me. Uh, well, like I said, I, I think we'll find some more really interesting and, uh, in, in some ways, really crazy discoveries uh, from this past year. But for right now, what what we're interested in is the stuff that already has happened. Because I think these discoveries, although we talked about them uh, in, a, in a lot of capacities, you know, and a lot of different ways that they could develop into other technologies... We probably haven't come across half of, of the actual applications they'll be used for. And um, like we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation, um, some of the things that come out of the past five years, 2011 to 2016, that will, that will go down as the biggest scientific discoveries may not even be on this list because they may be things that were accidents or things that were created in secret or things that were proprietary from companies that we won't find out about for years down the line. Right. There could be things that seem like they're a little out there, uh, but hey, you know, like I, I just watched a thing about a kid who made a nuclear reactor in his garage, and then he learned how to take the spent fuel from nuclear reactors and use that to fuel reactors and come up with way less uh, waste. <laughs> and this stuff is basically legit. So, like, that could be a whole new way of curing the energy problem by having safe uh, nuclear power that generates almost no waste. I want someone to build, like, a reactor based on his plans and it's just, like, put up a big sign that says, basically legit. It's probably Dude, gonna... I've seen the reactor. It looks legit. It's probably going to be okay. <laughs> he makes his own yellow cake uranium. No, no, I understand. Although <laughs> I, crazy. I'm not sure that that kid should be allowed to do, be doing that, but you know. Well, he <laughs> seems pretty harmless. Sure, mostly harmless. I don't think he's an evil super genius or anything. Maybe in the making, but not yet. They have to start somewhere. Hey, you know, we could we could have him on the side of good or the side of evil. Yeah, everybody thought Hitler was just a bad painter. <laughs> so let's not <laughs> discourage the kid, okay? <laughs> you're saying he had really bad art teachers that drove him to madness? Uh, Hitler or this kid? I don't know. Hitler, f- for sure. Both of them. <laughs> All right, well... This kid, not Hitler. Uh, if you don't have any more scientific discoveries to add... Dave, there are forever going to be scientific discoveries to add. I was hoping you'd say that. So, uh, maybe we'll come back and do a year in review or, or some other decade, because that's also really interesting. If you go back and look at, let's say, for example, the uh, the 70s and 80s, 
as compared to like the 90s and 2000s, it's like you were living in a completely different time. Sure, but if you were to be living in that time, there would be all kinds of things that seemed uh, significant and important to you. But when you look back at it, uh, you know, 10, 20 years later, you realize only a few of them have the really big lasting impression are the really big important things. Like if you looked at all the stuff that was invented in the 90s, maybe from 95 to 2005, you know, living in that time, a lot of that stuff felt huge. An MP3 player, and you know, the, the, uh, um, what's the, I, the Apple MP3 player. An iPod? An iPod. See? Look at this guy. That thing was the biggest thing ever. I couldn't even remember the name of it because it doesn't matter anymore. Dude, people use those every single day still. iPods are, dude, they don't sell iPods like they sell iPhones. Okay. Like, not even close. Well, those things are still very important. You're bringing up MP3 players and, and like, it's basically the transition between um, analog and, and digital media. Sure. So, I mean, that's among the most important things that we've ever discovered. Absolutely. And, uh, so I'm just ones saying, and zeros, man. They're they're huge. I wasn't I wasn't presenting the opinion that uh, that these things would all be lost to time. Although a lot of them will be. I was just saying. Like, I think they will. <laughs> the the uh, um, significance of the discoveries and the ex- like um, uh, exponential growth of technology through the decades is very apparent if you look at it. When you go from the the 60s to the 70s to the 80s to the 90s. Well, those were huge leaps and bounds. But even looking at the last ten years to the last five, it seems to me that like you know we're we're still continuing to double up on uh, scientific discovery. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I love it. Phenomenal. Uh, well, right. uh, thanks for listening to the show tonight, then, and I, I do recommend everyone go out and and listen to our other podcast that you can find available on Stitcher and iTunes. Uh, just go ahead and search for Drink 5 Network or you can search for drink5.com. You can always go to our website at drink5.com to view all of the latest articles and podcasts. And uh, half the year we're focused on fantasy football. The other half we're focused on topical podcasts like the Retro Spectacle and TV Soup. If you have any uh, suggestions for topics for us, uh, Jason and I, please feel free to email us at jason at drink5.com or dave at drink5.com and I know we enjoyed ourselves and the beer that we're drinking I hope you did too Drink 5 buddy